Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adoption Hacks. I'm your co-host, Candace Laycock. Today on the show, it's an honor to have Sonia Martin. Sonia is one of the directors for Lifeline Children's Services. She's also an adoptive, bio, and foster mom. If you're looking for some incredibly practical tips and encouragement when parenting through behaviors like lying, hoarding, stealing, this is the perfect episode for you. Sonia gives real life examples and ways to flip the conversation to have connected parenting. We also look below the surface of these issues and how COVID can amp up these behaviors and what we as parents need to know. Here's our interview. All right, welcome Sonia to Adoption Hacks. It's so great to have you here. Thanks so much for letting me be part of the conversation. I'm excited. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with Lifeline? Sure. So I am the director of Central Alabama for Lifeline. Uh, Lifeline, just as a ministry, exists to equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to vulnerable children. And we do that through the church. Uh, We know that certainly we can seek to serve and love and lead and disciple these kids, but ultimately their greatest need is the need for a savior. And so the way that we partner with and come alongside local church bodies to then turn around and serve these vulnerable children is just such an incredibly biblical and God-honoring way to provide for the least of these. So through that, Lifeline has a few different ministry arms. We certainly work internationally through our Unadopted Initiative, um, as well as quite a few domestic services, whether that's through supporting and working and walking alongside with women facing unexpected pregnancies, whether it's domestic adoption, and certainly through foster care recruitment, training, um, and I'm probably forgetting a ton, but yeah, so many different ways that we just are able to engage, and we're just so thankful for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that aspect of Lifeline, how it is so well-rounded and centered around the child and the birth mother. And I think that's such a wonderful way to go about it. Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) Um, What is your background working with children from trauma? Yeah. So I actually kind of come at this from both sides of the coin. This is not only what I do professionally. This is what my education and research and background is in, but I actually also live this out personally. I have seven sons. Woo. Coffee. (laughs) coffee. So they are currently 16, 16, 16, 18, 18, 22, and 23. And all three of the 16-year-olds were actually adopted internationally back in 2011. So I think, and I hope certainly that there's a lot of value there for families. I speak at a lot of conferences and work with a lot of either pre-adoptive families or families that have adopted two days ago or two years ago. And I, I certainly hope that my ability to reach out and serve and hear them and hear their hearts, uh, not only from that professional lens, but also from the personal side, Mm -hmm. holds some value to them. So I get it. You know, I think it's one thing to know about trauma on an intellectual level, you know, to understand it and to read big giant books about it. And I think it's a whole other thing when it's at your dining room table every night. Yes. So, so true. Yeah, I have trouble with that sometimes, reading the scientific, like understanding the why, and that's so important, but then how that translates to a temper tantrum in the middle of the day, you know, that can be difficult. Exactly, yes. So it's Uh, it's fun to come at it from both sides. Yeah, so we're going to get into some, just talking about some behavioral issues and, and working with those. What are some I'm putting like quotes up with my fingers. What are some typical behavioral issues that 
we see with adoptive and foster children specifically? You know, it's funny that you asked that because I put together a training, goodness, probably about two years ago called Behavior 101, a practical guide to lying, cheating, stealing, manipulation, violence, aggression, and hoarding. It is perhaps the most long-titled training you've ever seen in your life, <laughs> but I selected those six roughly behaviors intentionally. That is over and over again what we see quite a bit of, lying, cheating, stealing, manipulation, violence, aggression, and hoarding. And I think certainly if we can just help parents and speak into that and give them some actual practical tips and tools to use, I think nothing makes me crazier than when I go to a conference or I go to a training and they tell me what I'm supposed to do when facing, you know, a certain behavior or a certain challenge, and then they never actually get around to telling me what to do. And, you know, that holds real, no, 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 no real value. So happy to kind of engage with that and give some actual practical strategies, which is so incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, I love your title I, you just cover it, cover it all in there, but why are those some of the things like, what is it about those that come out more in adoptive foster kids? Sure. Well, I think at their core, really a lot of them are just at a basic level of survival strategy. You know, we're going to lie and we're going to cheat and we're going to steal, for example, because we're not certain that our caregiver is actually going to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to not tell the truth when faced with confrontation because the ability to be open and honest and vulnerable enough and humble enough to look someone in the face and admit that you lied or admit that you broke the lamp that's now laying on the floor takes an incredible amount of vulnerability. And I think certainly we as adults <laughs> can struggle with that um, through our own walk. But then when we kind of translate that and shift that to the lens of a child who's coming from a hard place, it is infinitely even more difficult for them. So, you know, just with lying specifically, we see that they will use that as a survival strategy. And I think the challenging thing for parents is at its face value, it comes off as defiance. It comes off as disrespect. It comes off as, oh no, you will not look me in my face and lie to me. So it's really getting parents and caregivers, foster parents, adoptive parents, whoever is engaging with and interacting with this child, equipping them with the ability to see the need to wrap around this kid and maybe approach them quite a bit differently than that biological parenting model in order to have the best outcome. Yeah, but it works, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think that I feel like in some ways I, I've only adopted. And so I feel like I feel in a lot of ways for parents who have raised biological children before, because, and I, I assume you're in a way expecting to parent the same way and mm -hmm. to have to make that shift and parent differently, I feel like is, has got to be more difficult. So true. So true. And I know I certainly just personally experienced that, you know, before I walked into the adoption of my three sons, I was raising four lovely, obedient, God-honoring little boys who were successful and loved the Lord and did well within the context of our family. And I thought, well, I'll just pass over all of my lovely parenting wisdom and impart that upon my three traumatized children and it will all work out in the end. Um, and certainly as we know, 
doesn't quite so much work like that. So it's really at its core. I think therapeutic parenting is just so incredibly counterintuitive to that biological impulse, um, to the way that we think we have to parent. And that traditional parenting model, that biological parenting model works beautifully for a child who is foundationally and fundamentally secure within that relationship with their parent. It just does. If they disobey you, you can take away the phone for a week and likely it will get their attention a little bit. They have capacity, they have ability to reorient their behavior and we can pick right back up and kind of move on. But we take that more harsh first time obedience at all costs model you do this or else with our kids from trauma and woo we just kind of have a tendency to throw them upside down in so many ways when your child exhibits these behaviors that you're talking about what do parents need to be aware of I would say one of the biggest factors is understand and have an awareness of their own interpersonal functioning. The parents are the ones that are driving this path. They are the ones that are driving the car, so to speak. We would never take, for example, a seven-year-old child and put them behind the wheel of a car and say, okay, go for it. Here's the steering wheel, makes you turn one way or another, that pedal on the right. You can go fast or you can go slower. Totally your call. You got it. I'm just going to sit over here in the passenger seat and I'll be here if you need me. Um, our kids from hard places need high structure, but it has to be balanced with high nurture. We can't have high structure and low nurture. And conversely, we can't have high nurture and low structure because that actually works to make them feel unsafe. When they feel unsafe and they feel fundamentally not secured to at least one primary caregiver, woo, we can see all sorts of madness ensue. So we've really got to understand that balance of how we approach them. But secondarily, as I mentioned, understanding their own functioning. If you're prone to anger, if you're prone to just kind of immediately reflexively come back at your kid every time they, you know, miss the mark or go a little bit sideways, it's it so has the intensity and ability to really raise the stress level in your home and to really exacerbate so many of these negative behaviors. So getting parents to understand that their response and their reaction actually work phenomenally importantly to either decreasing or you know, increasing their child's negative reaction, but really it starts with the parents and that's hard, um, but so incredibly necessary. And how can we, how can we get better at controlling our reactions and not just having that knee jerk reaction to something that's happening, but having a more, like you say, like you're talking about more controlled response. Mm -hmm. I would say definitely prayer, um, definitely seeking the Lord through coming alongside and understanding maybe your own weaknesses, your own propensity towards certain stressors. The more insight parents can have into their own functioning, the better able they're going to be able to be to work on some things with themselves in order to bring about a better result with their child. When I used to do direct um, therapy with children and families, for example, I can't tell you how many times my phone would ring every day, you know, with a parent saying my 15 year old keeps putting holes, you know, in my sheetrock. When can I bring him in? When can I make an appointment? You know, my eight year old lies 
every time they open their mouth. When can I bring her in? What do you have available? And my answer to that is happy to help, but we're actually going to start with you. So I would always actually have those really quite a first fuse appointments were with just the parents because I need to understand the tone of the home. I need to understand the um, efforts towards maybe attachment, towards bonding, towards connecting with this child because that's where the victory is going to be found. I don't know where along the way we, whether as, as practitioners or we as parents, kind of subscribe to this model of my child is struggling Therefore, I will bring them to a stranger's office and sit them on their couch across from them for an hour a week, and we will just have all manner of progress to be made. Not so much how it works. Can therapy be effective? Absolutely, yes, but it definitely has to go hand in hand with the parental engagement model, especially when we're talking about children that are potentially in foster care or have been adopted, because that difference and that attachment specifically matters. What are some practical tools that parents can use? Yeah, so I think it varies greatly depending on what behavior we're talking about. You know, we were talking about lying just a minute ago. Well, practically speaking, you know, that might look like, let's say, um, you know, you've got a child who you know struggles with lying. That is one of their survival strategies. It's one of their weaknesses. And let's say that kid walks in the door and drops their backpack right there in the living room. And you can see that worksheet sticking out of the top of that backpack and it is completely undone. Moreover, you've gone on your little parents portal that afternoon and you know they have homework that day. Yet, kid walks in the door, what is the first thing that you say to them? Do you have homework? Did you do your homework? And he says, oh yeah, yeah, I did my homework, it's done. I had some extra time at lunch. Hmm, really, you did your homework? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's done, it's totally done. Okay, so you're telling me if I walk over to your backpack right now and pull that worksheet out, it's gonna be done. Oh yeah, 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 you don't need to check. Game on, right? And then we march ourselves over to that backpack and we yank that worksheet out and we point to it and we say, liar, go to your room, you've lost your PlayStation, your phone is mine, you're not going to the football game tonight, right? We just, we get involved in this negative back and forth engagement pattern with them. And really at that point, everybody's mad. Yeah. The kid's in his room grumbling about how much he hates you or how you're so unfair or mean. You're mad because he just looked at you and lied four times. Mm -hmm. But if I may, if we think back to that scenario for just a minute, I just set that kid up to fail. Yeah. I just asked him three, four, five successive questions. I know that the homework isn't done. I saw it. I can see that it's totally blank. So with lying specifically, what we want to do is get away from forming things in the, or phrasing things in the form of a question and make statements instead. Mm -hmm. So as it relates to that example, instead of saying, did you do your homework? Question. Instead, what you could say is, hey, sweet boy, hop up here. Let's have a snack and go over your homework together. You've been doing so good lately. I'm so proud of you. I don't care if he's got straight D's, I'm going to find something to affirm this child for. And mind you, hey, sweet boy, hop up here, let's have a snack and go over your homework together is a statement. 
I am not asking him a question, thereby I am not setting him up in a position where he can lie. So if I say, hop up here, let's go over your homework together in a light tone, in a very connected manner, he then is going to have to say something like, oh, well, I'm, I'm almost done. I just, I just need a few more minutes. Well, I know that's a lie. I know he hasn't started yet, but that's not the hill I'm going to die on. Right. I'm going to hop right over that and say something like, no problem, dude. How about 20 minutes? You and I'll sit together. Mm -hmm. High five. That type scenario breeds such a better result and a better, um, likelihood and probability that number one, the homework's going to get done. And number two, that everybody's not going to be mad and disconnected at the end of this event. So really each behavior really does hold a specific or a couple of specific therapeutic strategies mm -hmm. that are infinitely helpful, infinitely healing and work towards perpetuating some wholeness and kind of quote fixing that brokenness within our kids as it relates to the way that they engage with us. Um, and mind you, none of these need to be long-term. You know, when I walk people through what to do about stealing and how we approach kids in the store, how number one, when we get out of the car, we very gently come to them and say, you know, Hey, sweet girl, I know this can be hard for you. So remember, if you want something, baby, just ask me. Sometimes it'll be a yes, we could totally do that. Sometimes it's going to be a no, and sometimes you can ask me for a compromise, but high five, I know you can do it. And then we're aware of where they are in the store and what we do after we check out, and we walk through this whole scenario to help them overcome the need or the feeling to need to utilize those survival strategies, but they are not lifelong, meaning when that young girl grows up and she's 40 years old and she's got a husband and three kids, her husband is not going to have to go to her every time they get to Target and say, okay, honey, now remember, if you want something, just ask me. Well, that might be a good idea for Target, actually, now that I say that. <laughs> but overall, right, the goal, the goal is healing. Um, and that's, that's certainly what we find when we can get parents to kind of hop on board with this therapeutic model and lay down their need to, you know, control and dictate and at all costs die on every hill. Are we still going to hold them accountable? Yes. Are we still going to teach them? Yes. But it's the way we do it that really does matter. Mm -hmm. I love that example. Thank you so much for that. And it just shows how you're on the same team and you are tackling it, the issue together. You're not on opposing, opposing sides of the issue, but you're keeping that relationship whole and, and tackling it together. Absolutely. Their foundations are different, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're fundamentally built differently due to their past experiences, due to that past trauma. Therefore, it's almost a little naive of us to think that we can just treat them like our other children, right? We can, we can parent them like everybody else parents. We simply have to understand they're going to require a bit of a different approach because they're systemically foundationally built differently yeah. through no fault of their own. Right. If you don't mind, would you, um, would you tell us how you would tackle a hoarding situation? Yeah, absolutely. So, Hoarding can kind of manifest almost always in two different ways. First of all, food hoarding. We see that pretty commonly. And then the other thing that we often see is hoarding objects, which 
is typically, funny enough, not really useful objects. A lot of the times parents will find broken Happy Meal toys shoved mm -hmm. under the pillow or wrappers of things that were opened four days ago or bits of trash even that the child is holding on to for whatever reason. The good news is, is that there's ways that we come around to that. You know, with food, for example, one of the most um, effective methods is something called a yes basket. And that is simply just a basket, a bowl, a bucket. I don't care what kind of container it is, but it sits on your dining room table and it is full of all healthy food. Bananas, apples, grapes, mandarin oranges, cherries, dried walnuts, trail mix, almonds, whatever it is, all healthy food. With the idea being that the minute that child enters your home, as you're kind of showing them around, you say something like, hey dude, do you see that bowl over there on the table? Man, that's all you. Anytime you want, as much as you want, you don't even have to ask. It's just all you. Food is primal. Food is foundational, and I can't tell you enough how many behavioral, how much behavioral nonsense we see that actually is rooted in a lack of early access to food. So whether or not your child's file actually indicates a lack of early access to food or not, still highly, highly across the board recommend a yes basket. Um, you know, I hear a lot from parents, well, they'll eat it all the first day if I do that. And my response gently to them is they will eat it all the first day and they may eat it all the second day and the third day and the fourth day. But I promise you, you do this and you do it right, meaning it's always a yes and it never, never goes empty and you will see that food hoarding start to dissipate like hoarding. It is a switch in their brain. But I would caution you, you cannot have a yes pantry shelf. You cannot have a yes drawer in your kitchen. The reason for that is because it has to be visually accessible throughout the day to the child. As they're wandering around your home and playing and learning and doing all of the things, as their vision casts by that table, it's a constant input of, remember when you're hungry, oh, wait, you're good. Remember when you're hungry? Oh, wait, you're okay. You're okay. And you don't even have to trust anyone enough to ask because it's just always a yes. Now, eventually, we do tick that meter over ever so slightly, meaning, you know, six months later, nine months later, three months later, really depending on how your child's doing and what their own healing process looks like, we absolutely move the needle ever so slightly and maybe say something like, Hey, sweet boy, I'm so glad you've been enjoying your yes basket. Small change now. Anytime you want something, baby, you just ask me and I'm always going to say yes. You need me, I say yes. You have a need, I meet the need. You have a need, I meet the need. And this then becomes the message that we're imparting upon our children. But in the very beginning, they are not going to trust you enough. They have no relationship with you at that point to believe that you will say yes. Um, but you know, I tell parents all the time, I don't care if you are spooning the spaghetti sauce on the noodles and dinner is literally 20 seconds away and that child walks over and grabs a banana. We're not going to say, no, 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 dude, come on. Like there's 20 seconds away. We're not going to sigh. We're not going to say anything. It is always a yes. And if I would point out respectfully, 
so that child now eats four bites less of their spaghetti because they just had a banana, I'm gonna be okay with that, right? It's all about that perspective. But I hear parents say all the time, well, my kid wakes up at two o'clock in the morning and goes and steals food out of the fridge. Or my child goes to school every day and when they go through the lunch line at school, they steal three packages of crackers when they know they're only supposed to take one. Well, if I may, it's not stealing, it's hoarding. And they're doing it because they have an unmet need. So we can either start to do things like put locks on our pantries and locks on our refrigerators, which is gonna be do nothing but escalate that behavior, or we can partner with this child implement something as simple as a yes basket and watch them begin to heal. And that is just what it's all about. Yeah. That's so good. And yeah, that was our experience. Even with such a little one coming home, food was the comfort item. Food was the, the first way that we connected. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also the way that, you know, I would see him sneaking up on, people snacks at the playground, you know, that was just he, his comfort, his needs. So that's, that's so huge. I love, I love the points you brought out with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point and to your story, you know, I would absolutely encourage parents as well to do things like put a granola bar, put a little baggie of goldfish, you know, in that diaper bag, but show them, show that child, you know, it's there, you know, that you packed a snack for them for the drive home after the trip to the park, but they don't know that. And again, it's so incredibly important that we remove ourselves just from our tunnel parental vision Mm -hmm. of these situations and day-to-day engagements. And we really try to take on the lens of our child. So Mm -hmm. as you're walking out the door to take that three seconds and go, hey, buddy, check it out, man. I got your goldfish that you love. Mm -hmm. Man, you just let me know when you want it. You know, Mm -hmm. absolutely do stuff like that. Absolutely take maybe a little basket Um, or maybe even a gallon size Ziploc bag, put a couple of those mini water bottles in it and some little snack size baggies of whatever kinds of snacks. And maybe those live in your car. And so that any point, you know, when you see that your kid's going a little bit sideways or certainly at any point when they ask or verbalize a need for food, that you can meet that need, you can meet that need, you can meet that need. The more that we get in this rhythm with our kids, Baby, you need me, I meet that need. Baby, you have a need, I meet that need. We can see all manner of progress, healing, and just love really start to take root in their little hearts. Mm, That's so good. Thank you so much for those practical tools. That's incredibly helpful. Happy to. How do we walk, I get this question all the time. How do we walk the line of discerning trauma issues versus behavioral issues? Mm, Great question. Yeah, and I guess I would kind of flip that back on the person, right? Um, Only to say, does it matter? I mean, just to be frank, just to be drop dead honest, when you're faced with a kid who's lying all the time, does it matter whether it's a developmental um, stage that they're in or whether it's related to trauma? they're still lying. It's still really going to look roughly the same. And so the answer is the same. If it's that they're lying because they're seven years old, maybe, and that's a typical developmental stage that we see them exert this behavior, then they're doing it because they're seven. Or are they seven years old and lying because they spent birth to three in an institution across the ocean? 
I don't know. At some point we have to say, does it matter? Now I will say that oftentimes I get that question as well, is that I do tend to kind of speak it into parents that whereas we might see our children kind of ebb and flow through different behaviors, we might see them, you know, get into a spitting phase when they're two years old, or we might see them get into a phase where they like to take things from preschool and shove it in their pocket, you know, and as they kind of progress through the lifespan, our kids from trauma are equally going to have that same progression. But their highs are typically higher and their lows are typically lower, meaning whereas you might have a kid who typically in a typically developing child might lie every now and then just to get out of a situation, right? They're kind of dipping down into that um, flow chart, so to speak. Our trauma kids are going to lie more, um, more often and more severely, so to speak, than their same age peers who maybe haven't experienced trauma. But regardless, our approach and our answer to that is, is the same. We, we, we take that therapeutic road. We take that approach of connection over correction because our goal is to heal the heart. Our goal is to be that safe base for them. When a child feels safe, you're going to see improvement in behavior. You know, and a lot of the times, I, I can't remember who I heard this from or if I read it in a book or an article, it all runs together at some point, but I heard very recently someone say, and I thought it was so profound, that oftentimes, especially, let's say, for example, when we're adopting internationally, we fly over, we go through this process, we get our child in our arms, and the first thing we say to them is, I love you, baby, I love you. And that's all well and good, but understand that child has no concept, likely, of feeling systemically loved. Mm -hmm. So instead of, baby, I love you, can we start instead to communicate a message of, baby, you are safe? Mm -hmm. You are safe. And that is a word that they can grab hold of. And that is a word that they can put some definition behind. Mm -hmm. And so again, I would say, understand your impact as a parent because it cannot be negated enough. Um, you drive this ship. You determine how this is going to look. And it is incredibly God honoring for you to above all else, Put your connection and put yourself in a position and posture yourself in a way that you can be that child's one safe person. And it is going to be for everybody's benefit when we can capture that. Okay. With right now when we're recording this, COVID is still going on. I keep saying that when I'm recording, thinking that when people listen to it, it'll be over, but <laughs> that's not the case. <laughs> but um, with COVID, with a new school year, so much more stress, so much more uncertainty for families all around. But what can parents do to help their children at this time? Mm, great question. I actually just wrote a parenting column on this um, just last week and was talking about this exact issue. And my, my great point in there was, number one, grace. 
grace for yourself and grace for your children. We are all navigating uncharted waters with this. But more than that, understand that if you've got multiple children in the home, that each child is not going to respond to the situation in the same way. And I know that sounds obvious, right? Like, well, of course, they're all different people and they all have their own different personalities. We know that on an intellectual level. But when it comes to the practical day in and day out of living this COVID life, it can get lost <laughs> a little bit. So really being intentional to remind yourself that each of your children are wired differently. They are at varying stages of ages and development, and it is so incredibly important to meet them where they are. My bigger point in that column was actually reminding parents that though your kids are not the same, also so remember that you are not the same parent towards each of them. And what I mean by that is when you're a first-time parent, for example, you parent quite differently than you do on your third child, than you do on your fourth or fifth child. You have grown. You have matured. You have gotten some new skills. You have increased your knowledge base about child development, about parenting principles, about how to cook spaghetti in 10 minutes flat. I mean, in every way you have grown, well, the same can be said for your children. So just because you know, you've got three different kids at your dining room table doing virtual school every day, understand that all three of them are going to relate to you and relate and respond to this situation very differently. So be willing to be flexible with that. Be willing to give your children grace. If they've only been at math for 12 minutes and it's scheduled to go for, you know, 12 more minutes and they already need a break, let's go ahead and give them that. Let's Let's really kind of roll with this as best we can while keeping the stress, the strain, and the just anxious level amongst our home, both with ourselves and with our kids to a minimum, because nobody is going to respond well when everybody's brains are a little bit fired up. So really understand the environment and the atmosphere that you're creating for your kids to be able to learn. Can we have some soft music playing in the background? Can we light a candle first thing in the morning just to give that, you know, feeling? Can we put on some lamp light instead of our overhead lights? All of these things might not sound like much independently, but you put them together and we can really start to just position our children in a way that they can learn. You know, let's let's throw a sheet over the dining room table and allow them to do their spelling words in a fort um, that you've created as you've thrown a couple of your sofa uh, cushions underneath that table. Let's be creative, but at the same point, don't feel like you got to be, you know, the perfect Pinterest mom and make paper mache blueberry muffins every morning to accompany the real blueberry muffins. Uh, give yourself some grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, and how can, you know, we can get in these just cycles and routines and everything, but how can parents keep seeing what's really below the surface of some, some of these behaviors? Mm. I think you have hit the nail on the head of every um, difficulty that every foster or adoptive parent faces, right? How do we respect and respond to their history without treating them like a victim. Mm. The goal is not to have a 40 year old man sleeping on my 
couch, right? My goal is to launch them out into this world. My goal is to, you know, make disciples that can go make disciples. My goal for them is the gospel. My goal is not to keep them trapped in their own history. And my goal certainly is not for them to forever identify themselves as an orphan, to forever identify themselves as victims. Are they orphans? Were they orphans? Yes. Were they victims? Yes. So it's that balance and it's that fine line that we walk as parents with responding, reacting, respecting the history without responding and reacting relative to that history day in and day out. And not to sound like a broken record, but again and again, I will say the way we do that is this connection model. Because at some point, we deal with what's in front of us. We deal with the child that day. We meet them where they are. We wrap around them in this way and we walk towards healing together. And that's really where we're going to find that victory. And how can parents best refresh and reset to keep on parenting during these difficult times? Woo! Well, when you find that answer, by all means, let me know. <laughs> this is it. This no, is a big answer. <laughs> I think, you know, we certainly read a lot about things like self-care and I'll never forget. I was at a conference once and a foster mama um, had asked the trainer that day, you know, what, how on earth you keep telling me self-care, self-care. How do I do that? How do I do that with all these kids in my home every day? And the uh, lady that was speaking at the conference said, well, girl, I just, I got to take a cruise every now and then. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, but not so much helpful, you know, funny. Okay. But not helpful. You know, we are taking on their brokenness, you know, much like Christ takes on our sin and our brokenness and our ugly parts. We are doing the same for these children and how incredibly God honoring that is, how incredibly biblical that is, how incredibly loving that is, but it comes at a cost. Um, it is exhausting. It is difficult. Um, and to, you know, to know otherwise or to think otherwise is certainly slightly misguided. But the way that we balance that between kind of caring for ourselves is just hard. Um, and I think certainly in recent months, that hard has gotten even harder. Um, so I don't know that I have the grand answer for that. I would say find small moments and really keep some perspective that your quote self-care doesn't need to entail a seven night, eight day, all expense paid vacation, that you don't have to go, you know, scrape together money for a babysitter and get dressed up and go through all the trouble and pay a hundred bucks for dinner that night out at some fancy restaurant. I mean, you can by all means, but it doesn't have to look like that. Much like our connection with our children happens in small moments throughout the day, the same can be said for the way that we care for ourselves in small moments throughout the day. You know, can you set your alarm 10 minutes earlier than you are now, which will allow you to spend some time in the word in the morning, to drink your coffee in silence, to drink your coffee without having to microwave it, 27 times before you get to the bottom of the cup, right? These are things that are self-care. So just see if you can find some small ways, I think, and try to get out of this mindset and shift of, I've got to do something grand for myself. You don't, you can, you know, 
go with God. God bless you. Do that. But you know, when you can't do that, there's certainly some other ways. Yeah, absolutely. That getting up a little bit earlier every day is huge for me. It changes my whole day too. hundred percent. I totally agree. I remember when my twins were three and then my other two boys were, I believe five and six, somewhere around there. And I discovered the virtue of getting up every day before the children getting dressed in actual real person clothing and throwing a brush through my hair for whatever reason made all the difference to me. Uh, previous to that, I was kind of waking up when the kids woke up, you know, I was a stay at home mom for, you know, 20 years and loved that life. And, you know, so enjoyed that, but that had been my pattern. And for whatever reason, I, I think it was that my oldest had started maybe kindergarten or first grade or something at that point, but it was a revelation to me. I felt like a human being mm -hmm. if I could just take those 10 minutes and actually get dressed in the morning. What a concept um, yeah. before the kids. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. This, this was like incredibly helpful, educational, and, and interesting. So thank you so much for sharing with our listeners today. Well, you are quite welcome. I respect the heck out of what foster and adoptive parents do. And it is just such a gift um, to be able to walk this road with them. So happy to be here. Thank you. Um, where can we find you, find Lifeline? How can we get more information? Sure. So you can check out lifelinechild.org. You'll be able to look at all of our different ministry arms there, ways to serve, ways to get involved. We've got ways from everybody from young children with our Stand for Orphans initiative all the way up through adults. So there are definitely ways to serve and seek the least of these um, that maybe doesn't include adoption or fostering directly, but that doesn't negate um, your call and, um, you know, certainly our responsibility to, to, to help the vulnerable. So lifelinechild.org is going to be your best resource for that. Thank you so much for listening. If you aren't already, we would love if you would follow us on Instagram at adoption hacks. And if you would give us one of those five star rating and reviews on iTunes. Thanks everybody. Hope you have a wonderful week.